Uh, would you take the Word of God this evening with me and turn uh, to the book of Psalms? And we're going to be in Psalm uh, 10 uh, for this study. <clears throat> you can bring it down there. That was really loud. All right. So Psalm 10, before, before we stand and read through the psalm, I would like to give us uh, uh, some preliminary statements and uh, set the stage here before we consider the psalm. We find references made to really two groups of people. Uh, the first group, we will find they are called the wicked, or they're also called the heathen. And much of this psalm tells us what the wicked does. And so we're going to look at that. But then there's another group of people that we find in the psalm, and they are referred to as the poor, the humble, the oppressed, and the fatherless. Now, we're going to find as we read that our understanding of the wicked and the heathen will be very clear in the psalm because he's going to spend much of the psalm to describe what the wicked does. On the other hand, however, as we think and read about the poor, and by the way, he's going to be mentioned, the poor is going to be mentioned a number of times, or the humble, the oppressed, or the fatherless, uh, we're going to find here that the poor has to be understood basically as a humble man who is seeking the Lord. Uh, this pattern, by the way, is found throughout the scriptures. It does not mean, uh, when you read about the poor over and over again in the psalm, it does not mean that this person is completely destitute of worldly goods. That's not what he's talking about. It means that he sees himself as completely destitute without God. Now, the reason why I say that is because that's the pattern we find in the Scriptures. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? The opening words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 3. He said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so he began by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, we know that the idea of poor here is not talking about someone who experiences poverty in the pocketbook. He's talking about someone who is poor in spirit, someone who understands that they are nothing without God. That's the poor. And throughout the book of Psalms, even throughout the book of Proverbs, we find that pattern that the poor refers to the person who is seeking God, not the person who is destitute of worldly goods, but someone who understands that they are nothing without God. Now, let me give you a few examples. Uh, Psalm 34, 18 says this, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and he saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. In Psalm 51, verse 17, the psalmist uh, David in his confession, he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Even in the book of Proverbs, we have verses like this. Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly. With what? With the poor. Than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 29, 23 says this, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. 
Even when God sent the prophet Isaiah to uh, preach to the children of Israel, he said this in Isaiah 57 verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this, For all those things hath my hand made, and all those things hath been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. I like what Proverbs 13, 7 says, There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. You see, as we find in the word of God, the pattern in the word of God is those who are called poor in the word of God are not those who are destitute of worldly goods. It is those who are nothing without God and who see themselves as nothing without God. I'm reminded, you remember when Jesus Christ wrote to the church of the Laodiceans and he rebuked them. You remember what he said to them? He said this, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind. You see, what God wants us to realize, He wants us to realize that we are poor. What does that mean? That we are nothing without God. That we are but dust. And so when we find in the book of Proverbs, often when you find the idea of someone who is poor, someone who is oppressed, someone who is humble, someone who is fatherless, we're talking about someone who has, who spiritually is seeking God. They are portrayed as poor in the word of God, but yet they are rich. So let us stand together now for the reading of Psalm chapter 10, and we're going to read all 18 verses. <clears throat> Psalm 10, verse 1. The word of God says, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth 
him into his net. He coucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contempt God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite. To requite it with thy hand, the poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. To judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. I'd like to bring your attention to the questions in verse 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? It's a question. He begins the psalm. Notice with me what he says then in verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. I'd like to preach this evening on a message that I've entitled, Has God Forgotten the Humble? Has God Forgotten the Humble? That's the question that this psalm is asking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word, for this psalm. Lord, help us to receive what we need to receive from it tonight. I pray that you would help us to be part of this group that is spoken of as being poor, as being humble, as being oppressed and fatherless. I pray that you would help us to see that there is great value in that, but also to help us this evening to remember that you have not forgotten the humble. And at times it may seem that you have, but help us to be reminded, as the psalmist does in this psalm, that you have not. And so help us to be encouraged and strengthened this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I announced already, when you look at this psalm, there are only two categories of people found in this psalm. Now, obviously, excluding the Lord, uh, there are two categories of people. And again, this pattern is found throughout the Bible. It's found in the book of Proverbs. There's a contrast between the wise and the wicked. Uh, We find throughout the Psalms there is a contrast between the wicked and between the poor, between the lowly and the humble in contrast to the wicked and to the heathen. And so we find that contrast throughout the Word of God and there are two categories always found. And what I'm saying by that statement is that there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground in between. There's either the wicked or there's the poor. And I think what we learn in the Bible is that often people who cease to be poor in spirit will soon find themselves to be part of the wicked. Now, the wicked is known for his wickedness. And so it's important for us, and I think we can identify that in our own lives. 
We look around us in the world, we say, all right, well, we see what the wicked, the wicked does wickedness. But we know that as believers, we are not exempt from sometimes doing wickedness. Sometimes it may be that we may do, we may sin against God. But often it will be connected to a separation or to a departure from having, from being a poor in spirit, being of a broken and a contrite heart, being of a humble spirit. The Bible says, and we'll find in this pattern here, that the wicked is known chiefly for his pride. Do you remember what James said to the believer? He says, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why? Because pride lends itself to wickedness. But humility lends itself to submission to God. And so here we find that there is no neutrality in the psalm. You're either in the category of the poor or you're in the category of the wicked. So it's the wicked versus the humble. Now before I go to verse 1, let me first establish here kind of the general view of this psalm. Really in the first verse we see uh, the the question uh, asked of the Lord. But then, really, for the majority of this psalm, from, uh, I guess you could say, verse 2 down to verse 11, uh, we have uh, the psalmist observing the wicked, and he describes, basically, what the wicked does. And then, we find in verse 12 and 15, we see his requests for the Lord's intervention. So there's the question, then what he observes, and then he basically requests for God to intervene and to do two things, to judge the wicked and to stamp out wickedness. That's what he's asking for. But then the last part, really verse 16 to verse 18 is, you find the psalmist, there's a complete change. And here's what he does. He rests in the Lord. That's what he does. So the first question, then the observation of the wicked, the request for the Lord's intervention, but finally, the rest that he finds in the Lord. So let's consider, and now I'm not going to start with the first one, I'll come back to that, because the question in verse 1 arises because of what he's observed, right? The, the question that we read in verse 1 is followed by here, I'm asking this question because of what I see in the world, because of how I see the wicked living their lives. And so let's begin by looking at what he observes from the wicked. And so the psalmist here describes what he has observed from the wicked. And so let's classify, right, what is the wicked like? What does he do? Let's establish that first and then see why does he do it. What is the root issue with the wicked? So let's first describe the wicked. First of all, verse 2, we see that the wicked is described as cruel. Verse 2 says, the wicked in his pride doth, notice, persecute the poor. Now, the idea of persecution is uh, has a level of cruelty. Now, we know that because we are familiar with the Apostle Paul, how he persecuted the church, and what does the Bible say in Acts chapter 8? He made havoc of the church. He uh, hauled men and women out of their houses, and so on. And so, the idea of persecution conveys the idea that the wicked is often described as being cruel in his behavior. Then we learn in verse 3 that the wicked is a promoter of covetousness. Notice verse 3. The wicked boasteth of in his heart's desire and blesseth 
the covetous. What does that mean, bless? He encourages, he favors, he honors the covetous. Now, notice here, what what is God's view of covetousness? Well, verse 3 tells us, whom the Lord abhorreth. You know what God abhors? Covetousness. Now, when we, we know the, what the commandment says, thou shalt not covet, and he goes on, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's house, and so on. He gives a list. But what is at the root of covetousness? It is this, man trying to be satisfied with things of the world. Satisfaction, true satisfaction, will only be found in God. And so really covetousness springs out of idolatry that man thinks that Things in this world can satisfy him, and only God can satisfy. And so that's the sin of covetousness. God abhors covetousness. He hates covetousness, but the wicked promotes covetousness. Uh, And by the way, you find wickedness abounds in our world. Why? Because what is the world given to people in part? Here is something to satisfy you. Get you a best house, the best car, uh, have this type of life. Uh, What's all the advertisement today? Hey, you deserve a brand new iPhone. What is that? Promoting covetousness. You can't live without it. Your life will not be satisfied until you get this. Covetousness. None of the things in the world can satisfy. Only God can satisfy. And so we see the wicked is a a, a promoter of covetousness. We also see, verse 4, that the wicked is disinterested in seeking after God. Notice verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. And so he is not interested in the things of God. By the way, we meet, when we try to witness, we meet a lot of people who are disinterested in the things of God. And there is nothing that is more hurtful for us who know the Lord to find people in such apathy and so disinterested in God and seeking God or having any thoughts about God. So that's the, what the wicked is. The wicked is disinterested in seeking after God. We also see verse 5 that the wicked is disconcerned with righteousness. Uh, notice verse 5. He says, His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. So the idea of uh, God's judgments is, the idea is that's the word for, we could say, God's righteousness, how he communicates his righteousness is through judgments. Uh, You could say precepts, ordinances are other words that resemble judgment. But basically, a judgment is things that are right. And the wicked is disconcerned with righteousness. He's not interested in what is right and wrong. By the way, we live in that society today. Uh, There is no such thing as right and wrong. You have your own truth. What's true for you is good for you. What's true for me is good for me. I have my own truth. There is no such thing as your own truth. There's truth and then there's lies. The wicked is uh, disconcerned with righteousness. Verse 6, we find that the wicked uh, thinks himself to be unmovable. Notice verse 6. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be an adversity. That's that's the wicked. That's his mindset. He thinks himself to be unmovable. He he thinks that uh, nothing in this life will expose any weakness in him. He is unmovable. We see in verse 7 that the wicked is also revealed by his tongue. Verse 7 says his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is 
mischief and vanity. And so his, his tongue reveals the depth of his wickedness. We also find in verse really uh, 8 through 10, we find that the wicked is deceptive in his ways. Now, from verse 8 down to verse 10, those go together. And let me show you how they go together. He says in verse 8, He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion. So that's key. So when we think about the wicked, he's like the lion. Like a lion doing what? Like a lion hunting his prey. Now, what does he do that? He lieth in wait to catch the poor. Anybody ever watched a documentary of a lion hunting its prey? Okay, well, you know how they do it. They approach uh, in a stealth way. They crouch down, they low, and then they bounce when it's the right opportune time. And so they sneak around. And uh, that's what they do. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. Uh, He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. If you look at a, uh, I guess they're called a a pride of lion. I was going to say a pack, but that's a wolf wolf for wolves. But a pride of lion, they'll have the chasers, but then they have lions set throughout that catch the prey, uh, that cut them off, basically. And so they they draw the net. They, They try to... Uh, navigate their victim in the certain place so that they can draw the net and trap that beast. Verse 10, he, notice, croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He's referring to the lions. See, um, the strong ones is the male lion who comes often when he comes to inflict the, I was going to say the kill shot, but it's the, the kill bite. He comes down upon the beast. The, the strong one and those that follow, they bring the beast down. And so it is likened to the wicked. Now, what it, does that all speak of? Well, the, the, the wording, verse 8, is in the secret places. Verse 9, he lieth in wait secretly. Notice verse 10, he croucheth and humbleth himself. And the poor may, that the poor may fall by him, by his strong ones. And so it's deceptive, it's secretive, it's not open and honest. And so the wicked is deceptive in his ways. We could say, as he does things secretly, that uh, he, there's a lot of conspiracies in his mind. He looks at the poor, those who are seeking God, and the wicked tries to stamp him out. That's what the wicked does. Why? Because the poor is a constant reminder that the wicked is wicked. And so he's got to rid himself of the poor. But we also see one more thing in verse 11. We see that the wicked is emboldened by the seeming absence of judgment from his actions. Notice verse 11. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten He hideth his face, he will never see it. That's what the wicked thinks. You see, the wicked thinks because in the moment of his wickedness, because he is not judged by God, that God has forgotten, God hasn't seen it. By the way, if there was a God, then go ahead, strike me dead. See, people say that today. Before they're about to do wickedness, well, if there's a God, strikes me dead. And God doesn't strike them dead, and so they are emboldened by their wickedness. And so that's a description of the wicked. And we read really verse 2. No, it says the wicked. Verse 3, for the wicked. Verse 4, the wicked. And then verse 5, his. Who's his? The wicked. Verse 6, 
he hath said in his heart, the wicked. Verse 7, his mouth, the wicked. Verse 8, he sitteth in the lurking places, the wicked. Verse 9, he lieth in wait secretly, the wicked. Verse 10, he croucheth, the wicked. Verse 11, he hath said in his heart, that's all the wicked. Every time he makes a reference to the wicked. Okay, so we have a description of how the wicked, uh, the ways of the wicked in this world. Um, but let's go back to the root. Why does he do what he does? Well, we have a clear explanation from the opening verses. Really, really the first three, uh, verse two, three, and four. Notice the wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Verse three, the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire. Verse 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance. What's the root issue for the wicked? Pride. pride. Why does the wicked do what he does? Because of pride. He is filled with self. Now, uh, we say, okay, what? how could we best describe pride today? Pride, you ready for it? It's this, I'm God. I'm in charge. I will have no one over me I am my own God. That's pride. By the way, that's the devil. The devil said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend. You see, as he thought himself to be above God, and yet he was brought down. And so the root, the root issue for the wicked is his pride. No wonder that the complete opposite of the wicked is the poor in spirit. The humble. It's the exact opposite of the wicked because what stands as the chief sin of the wicked is pride. The chief quality of a servant of God is humility. So, what he has observed, I want you to understand here, just to try to, he's asking a question at the beginning because of what he's observed, right? Uh, that's why he's asking the question. Why, verse 1, standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thyself in times of trouble? Uh, he's asking, God, where are you? In what? In dealing with the wicked. Why don't you judge them, God? Are you not seeing what is going on? Are you not seeing how the wicked lives, how he speaks, how he lives, and he does that all that in his pride? He even mocks you. Because he continues his wickedness and he is unjudged. He says there is no judgment coming. So what the psalmist has observed, he cannot unsee. What he has experienced, he cannot forget. So we see what he observes in the wicked, but then we come to the second point, which is the first verse is the question for the Lord is, is why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? That's a common question, isn't it? Maybe in our own lives as well. God, how long are you going to let this mess go on? You know, I've, I've asked myself with the subject of abortion. God, how long are you going to allow men to kill babies in the womb? God, how, how long can you let that happen without judging this nation? How long? And so we may think about uh, that subject, and we, we may ask God, how long? God, God, do you not see what is going on? Do, do you not observe? He, he says, are you standing afar off? 
Or are you hiding yourself in times of trouble? And so, by the way, uh, let's not be critical of the psalm here. This is him speaking genuinely from his heart, crying out to God. God, have you forgotten the humble? That's an important question. Now, I do want to say here that the question is, why standest thou afar off? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? Now, here is the truth. God is not standing afar off. And God is not hiding himself in times of trouble as if he's afraid of the trouble. The question again is not answered. And we find that throughout the Psalms. Just like Job, the questions directly asked of God are not answered. What needs to happen is we don't need to understand why. We just need to be reminded of who God is. Who God is. So, we see what he observes in the wicked. We see the question for the Lord. But then, we come to verse 12 through 15, and we see he, his requests for the Lord's intervention. So notice here, so basically the description of the wicked from verse 2 to verse 11, and then we come to verse 12, and here is what he is asking in this prayer. Here it is, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand. Now when that means in the Bible is, when he said, God, lift up your hand, he's talking about what? Judgment. Judge the people by your mighty hand. And he says, Forget not the humble. He says, wherefore does the wicked contempt God? God, the wicked, they hold you in contempt. They're mocking you. He hath said in his heart, thou will not require it. They say that you will never judge them because of their sin. That's what they say. They're mocking you, God. Verse 14, thou hast seen it. For thou beholdest mischief in spite. They do it in spite. <laughs> it's, uh, they're doing it as if to hurt you, God. That's why they're sitting. They do it out of spite. To require with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. And so, uh, Lord, uh, would you arise and judge them? Because they do things out of spite. They do things with a contempt for you. And yet the poor, he's committing himself unto you during all this time of trouble. And so, God, will you not arise? Verse 15 Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. And so here is, here is his request. God, would you notice, uh, he says, um, break thou the arm of the wicked. Stamp out the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. God, would you stamp out the wicked and uh, eliminate all wickedness? Let me ask you this. Is that a good desire? Well, yes. Will that happen one day? It will. Now here is what happens. The desire is, is not wrong because the wicked must be punished and wickedness must be stamped out. And it will. And by the way, if you're saved, wickedness was punished in the person of Christ. And one day... God will make all things right. He will judge the world in righteousness. 
And in the end, there will be a new heaven, a new earth. He's going to make all things new. And so we know that. Now, he is talking and asking in this request for God's intervention. But I want you to notice here that uh, we find that pattern in Psalms, but God uh, doesn't intervene. See, the right desire does not necessitate God's immediate intervention. I think at that moment, the psalmist is reminded of something. And here is why we change now from his requests for the Lord's intervention, but then he changes something. And here's the change. The change happens, and God has not intervened. Let me ask you this. When this psalm was written, were all the wicked stamped out, and was all wickedness stamped out? No, it was not. God did not arise at that particular time and stamp out all the wicked. He didn't do that. But notice what happens in the heart and the mind of the psalm. We see that he finds rest in the Lord. Notice verse 16. And this is a complete change in the dynamic of the psalm. You read the first 14 verses. Is the question, why? Uh, are you not here, God? Are you uh, far away? Uh, don't you, are you hiding yourself from trouble? Have you forgotten the humble God? They're uh, doing things out of spite. They're saying judgment is not going to come. Would you stamp out wickedness? Would you stamp out wickedness? And then he says in verse 16, The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Okay, here's the change. You see, God, you've heard the desire of the humble. But you know what? What I want is not for you to intervene now. That's not what I need. What I need is for you to prepare my heart. Thou will cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppressed. Here's the key to this psalm, the last three verses. Is the psalmist resting in the Lord? Here's what we need to learn. We may have the question sometimes, God, why? Because of what we observe. And sometimes we may have a right desire. It's not a wrong desire for God to make all things right. Because we know what God has said in his word, that he will make all things right. And that's the right desire. But God is interested in doing something in our lives today. And he is interested in us resting in him. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think we have the formula. He reminds himself, he learns to encourage himself in the Lord with three truths. Ready? Truth number one. <clears throat> Verse 16, God is infinite, but the heathen is finite. God is infinite, but the heathen are finite. Notice what he says. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are are perished out of his land. So, he first, there's a, there's a contrast. Do you notice between the Lord and the heathen? So, notice the contrast is no longer between the wicked and the poor or the humble. The contrast now is between the heathen and God. And this is where it needs to be. Understand, what's going on in the world is not us versus them. It's them versus God. 
That's what's going on in the world. That's the view that we ought to have. And so we see he reminds himself of two things about the Lord. First of all, his authority. He says, the Lord is king. (laughs) That answers the question in a way that doesn't answer the question in verse 1. God, in verse 1, why do you stand afar off? Do you hide yourself from trouble? No, he is king. Now, what does that mean? He has authority. Uh, Notice we know he is king because he says at the end of verse 16, the heathen are perished out of his land. Whose land? God's land. It's his. We were reminded, by the way, of Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of the heavens is the Lord's, thy God, the earth also, and all that therein is. And so he reminds himself of his authority, but then he reminds himself of God's eternality. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Double emphasis. If you could say he is king forever, that's enough. But it's not enough for God because he is infinite forever and forever. So understand here, while the psalmist was living there, there were still heathen in the land. Were there not? However, in contrast to the eternality of God, those heathen from the generations gone by have all died, haven't they? They have perished and they have been taken out of the land and remember that death itself is the judgment of God, is the curse upon mankind. And so here's what he, he's reminding himself that, well, I, I know God one day will make all things right, but he's already made things right. Because the heathen have already been taken out of his land. Those heathen, because if we think about the, that God is king forever and ever, he is eternal. And so as all those generations pass, guess what? The heathen go on, and then there's another generation of heathen. But that generation of heathen, they die, and they pass, but God remains. And so we are in the 21st century, and there's nothing new under the sun. But let me encourage you with this. The heathen generations, those who do not see God, have passed, and they've died, but God remains. They've passed on. So that we know what that means for this generation. We uh, may be the poor and the humble, and those who do not see God, who want to have nothing to do with God, they will pass on, but God will remain. So we see his authority, uh, we see his eternality, but then he, he, he turns to the heathen, and he says that that will prepare, or verse 16, the heathen are perished out of his land. So we know that there were present heathens during his lifetime because he saw what they did. So what heathen is he talking about that are perished? The ones that have gone by before. They've perished. And so it's a good reminder. So truth number one, God is infinite, but the heathen are finite. They, they will pass. The second truth, truth number two, Verse 17, God is very present. Notice verse 17. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. Now, there's really three basic things contained in this truth that God is very present. He says this, God knows, God prepares, and God hears. Now, notice here, I, I say God knows because his Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. What was the desire of the humble? Well, it was expressed from verse 12 to verse 15. God, would you arise? Would you intervene? 
That was his desire. And so here's what he says. God, you know my desire. You know the desire of my heart. I've expressed that desire. But here's what he says. So God, you know. And so let me rest in the truth that God knows that God is what? He is not distant. He is not hiding himself. That's the question of verse 1. He is not standing afar off, and he is not hiding himself. And so uh, the Lord is, what he's saying is, the Lord is near, and the Lord has heard me. He knows my desire. Uh, And he believes that the Lord will make himself known in time of trouble. And so we see, he sees, he says, God knows, but then also God prepares. He says, thou will prepare their heart. Notice, who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the humble, right? He says, verse 17, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou will prepare their heart. Who's there referring back to? The humble. Now, the word prepare is an interesting word. What does that mean, prepare their heart? Well, the, the word literally means to establish, to settle, to confirm. So, Here's what he is saying here. God, would you prepare? Would you establish? Would you settle? Would you confirm the heart of the humble? That means this, that the fears of the humble would be dispelled. Could you establish the heart of the humble, God? Could you dispel the fears of the humble that their apprehension and that their alarm about the world would be replaced with assurance. You see, God, would you do that for the humble? Uh, Did you think God will do that for the humble? Of course he will. Thou hast heard the desire of the humble, thou wilt prepare their heart. You see, God, he's not saying here, oh God, you're going to remove all the heathen in my lifetime. That's not what he says. God, what I want you to do I know the heathen are going to be in the land, and one day they will pass on. You will remain. Help my heart to be settled. Would you do a work in my heart as I dwell in the midst of heathens, of those who do not seek seek you? So God knows, God prepares, but then God hears. He says, that will cause thine ear to hear. And so here is what he says. The Lord is ready to hear. He has made himself available for the oppressed. Here's what we think. God, would you intervene in the world? Would you stamp out the wicked? And you know what God wants for us? He wants to minister to us instead of dealing with the wicked now. What would we like? What is our priority? Are we interested in more God-making Things right in the world? Or are we interested in God giving us what we need today in the midst of this world? You see, God is, God's ear is not too distant that it cannot hear. His arm is not too short that it cannot reach. So here is truth number one. God is infinite. The heathen are finite. Truth number two. God is very present And he is interested in ministering, preparing my heart. And truth number three, God will vindicate the oppressed. Here is is verse 18. Now there is a a colon at the end of verse 17, so the thought continues. He says, so let's read verse 17 and 18 together. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou will prepare their heart. Thou will cause thine ear to hear. 
to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. Now, notice the word judge here. We say, well, wait a minute. I thought the fatherless and the oppressed was the, the humble and the poor. Yes, you're right. But the word judge is, does not always mean something negative. The word judge is basically describing the act of a judge who does either one of two things to someone standing before him. He either punishes him or he vindicates him. That's what a judge does. He has, there's two responsibilities as a judge. He tries someone And he either punishes him or he vindicates him. You're either going to experience judgment or punishment or you will be what? You'll be justified. You'll be vindicated. And so when he says to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, what he's saying is that in the end, God, who is the judge, he will vindicate the fatherless. He will vindicate the oppressed. Notice, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. So here is, I think the, the language is important for us here because I don't think he's talking about, well, one day God will vindicate us. I think is what he's talking about, notice, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. He's talking about his present life. Notice, he, he described himself as oppressed, the fa- being fatherless and oppressed. That's the poor, that's the humble, oppressed at the hand of the wicked. And so notice he said that I may no longer be oppressed. Now, the word oppress means this. If you're oppressed, that means that if I'm oppressing you, I'm causing dread in your life. If I'm oppressing you, I'm causing you to be frightened. If I'm oppressing you, I am bringing fear in your life. Uh, If I'm oppressing you, I'm prevailing over you. Uh, The word actually oppressed means to shake terribly. So here's the present. God vindicate us. Vindicate us. Judge the fatherless and the oppressed. That the man of the earth, that's the wicked, may no more oppress. See what he says. God, would you... Vindicate me so that I would no longer dread or be frightened or be brought in fear or be prevailed over or to shake terribly because of the wicked. What is he saying? God, help me not to be troubled anymore. Vindicate me so that the wicked no longer has rule over my heart to break it down and to shake it and to cause it to fear and to cause it to be defeated. We are, as Christians, we are not to be defeated. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so if the world has defeated you, you are in the wrong place. If you are defeated and depressed and feel oppressed by the world, that you're in the wrong place. You say, okay, so pastor, if I feel that, then what do I do? Think about those three truths. God is infinite, and the heathen are finite. God is very present, and he wants to help you by preparing your heart. He wants to settle your heart so that it no longer fears, that it is no longer shaking terribly at the oppressor, And truth number three, God will vindicate the oppressed, by the way, in this life. In other words, you no longer have to be troubled by the world. Why? 
because you know that God is near. So would you answer the question this evening, has the Lord forgotten the humble? Has he forgotten the humble? Would you answer that question in your own heart? Let's do it out loud. Has God forgotten the humble? No, he has not. Will he ever forget the humble? No, he will not. So, believer, take courage. Take courage. The Lord is king forever 